This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Noelle Goddard. She's the CEO of QNECT. Noelle served on the company's board in 2019 and then was invited to join QNECT's management team in 2020. Prior to this role, she was a seed investor with the Accelerate NY Seed Fund, where she built a portfolio of 24 companies across deep technology and life science sectors. Noelle is also a serial entrepreneur, having founded and led two biotech startup companies. Before joining the startup community, Noelle was an assistant professor of physics at Hunter College, City University of New York. She received her PhD in physics and biology from Rockefeller University and went on to receive a postdoctoral research fellowship at Harvard University. Fun fact, Noelle was an avid sport bike motorcyclist for 10 years. Her company, QNECT, innovates and commercializes the core technologies needed for scalable, quantum-safe communication. In 2021, the company introduced the world's first commercial quantum memory. It sits in a standard server rack without the need for extreme cooling or vacuum infrastructure support. The memory serves as the cornerstone of QNEC's quantum repeater product suite, an integrated solution for long-distance distribution of entanglement across existing telecommunications infrastructure. The company is headquartered in the Brooklyn Navy Yard in New York City and has received research support from the U.S. Department of Energy, the U.S. Air Force, and the National Science Foundation. So welcome, Noel. Thanks for joining me. Delighted you're here. Delighted to be here, Chris. Thanks so much. I want to start the podcast, I always do this, by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. So my objective is twofold, certainly to give our audience insight into what you did before you joined QNECT. It sounds like you did a lot of interesting, important work, but also to orient our listeners more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So could you please share a bit about your background and path so far, maybe where you grew up, some details about where you went to school and what you studied, and any insight into the companies or organizations where you worked, maybe specifically the biotech startups that you founded? Sure. So um, I have lived in New York City since 1992, except for a few uh, years that were spent in Boston for that uh, postdoctoral fellowship you mentioned. But I actually grew up in East Tennessee in a small town uh, southeast of Knoxville, where uh, I went to typical public school system uh, all the way through. And I, at the end of uh, high school, applied for basically merit-based scholarships all over the country, uh, hoping to, to find a good scholarship. And lo and behold, I was accepted to Cooper Union, uh, which is a, a small engineering art and architecture school in the East Village, which if you're accepted, it's a, a full ride, uh, so a full scholarship. Uh, so I was accepted into their engineering program, and uh, it's, I suppose, like winning the lottery. Uh, I, at the time, didn't even know that New York had five boroughs. So, <laughs> so I showed up, and I was ready to, ready to, like everybody, I think, you know, you come to New York, and uh, you realize that everybody's at home in New York because... And it's such a wonderfully accepting place. Um, two years into engineering school, I realized that the jobs that people uh, were getting, who were my friends who were graduating, were not exactly the jobs that I thought I 
I thought engineers do. I mean, I, I suppose everybody romanticizes what they think uh, the end of the road is. And uh, I had a research fellowship at a Department of Energy lab in Manhattan that uh, I don't even know if they still exist anymore, but they, they had some uh, research labs that were here since the time of the Manhattan Project. And I had done a summer internship there and was fortunate to meet some sort of uh, quirky scientists that worked after hours and loved to build their own instruments and were very inspiring to me in terms of the sort of different lifestyle that scientists have in a laboratory environment versus working in a more corporate environment as a company engineer or something like this. So I I basically decided that I wanted to switch to science because I liked the idea of doing problem solving all the time and having this sort of open palette to do design and to try to answer those questions. And I liked the the interdisciplinary types of questions that you run into often at the fringe of different fields. And that's how I got interested in eventually what would become what I did um, in the first sort of chapter of my, my research life was the intersection of biology and physics. But actually, my first graduate work uh, was at Polytechnic University in Brooklyn, which is now um, part of the NYU system. It's the NYU oh, yeah. School. Yeah. And uh, I, I was doing a senior research project there and ran into a, a professor in the physics department named Steve Arnold, who was just an extraordinary mentor. And what he was doing is he, was, uh, he had built within his laboratory this apparatus for trapping single aerosol particles. So they were these single spheres that were levitated in space and trapped. And uh, they had built all of the equipment, the electronics and machine, the traps themselves, et cetera. So it was a very self-sufficient, great learning environment type of laboratory because every time they needed to do something, there wasn't something off the shelf. They had to build that device themselves. And what they were studying was the fact that if there were molecules within the aerosol that were receptive to different types of light, particularly if they absorbed light, then that light could actually echo around in the droplet using the droplet like a cavity. And in fact, you could see all sorts of interesting cavity resonance effects, which are the hallmark of things like cavity QED, et cetera. And it was a very elegant system that, again, ran on normal power coming out of the wall, right, like a 60 hertz cycle. Uh, to do a, a, an experiment, which some physics labs would be doing, that again had tremendous, you know, millions of dollars worth of support equipment. Instead, this laboratory had built this system to study interesting effects, which were something that you could do like on the benchtop without all of this ancillary things. I think I've always liked that. It's a little bit more of the intersection of engineering and science, where you don't you don't need you know ten million dollars worth of stuff in order to look at something very exquisite. <laughs> Right, yeah. like the people who managed to do that elegantly. Um, so I actually sort of learned to be a scientist at uh, this laboratory. Uh, so Steve Arnold really mentored me in the earliest of my graduate days. And then I got very interested in the idea of the intersection of biology and physics and Rockefeller University, which is located in Manhattan, had a, a, an initiative at the time. This is before biophysics degrees were sort of the norm because there's all sorts of combined degree programs now. But In 1999, it was still sort of uh, not something that you saw everywhere where you actually had a combined degree program, which in this case, if you had had your physics uh, training elsewhere, then Rockefeller would give you the biology training in a combined PhD program. So I transitioned to Rockefeller. Uh, I, I think one of the great humbling moments in your life is whenever you don't understand how hard another 
scientific discipline is until you're you're basically drowning in it. <laughs> so, oh my goodness! So, so, so physicists, you know, I think we're all guilty of it, right? So any 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 experts in any field have a tendency to perhaps uh, underestimate the difficulty of others other fields. So um, I had a huge learning curve, but. I always thought that there was a tremendous amount of elegant, beautiful things that happen in experimental biophysics. So I decided to, to go to Rockefeller and I worked with uh, two wonderful scientists there. My physics advisor uh, is Albert Liebschwer, uh, who was uh, one of the great experimentalists in the, the days of uh, proving sort of, sort of the early premises of chaos theory uh, using liquid, liquid helium droplets in a little turbulence chamber. Wow, amazing. And yeah, so he was fantastic, but he had since transitioned to to biophysics and he was doing lots of beautiful elegant experiments in biophysics. And uh, the um, the late uh, Nobel Prize winner Joshua Lederberg, who had been president of Rockefeller for a long time, was my biology advisor. And he really loved he just loved science. So I, I was very blessed to have two people who still loved to discover things. Uh, they were whimsical experimentalists. Uh, who wanted to try to do something interesting and really didn't see a lot of boundaries. So um, I can I can't say enough wonderful things about Rockefeller University and the type of education that it supports. Yeah. Um, well, and how how did you make the transition then from you know into sort of the biotech startup world? Because that's a big that's a big shift, right? I think our listeners would be interested in you know it's always the transition from academia to industry, quote unquote, the private sector. So I definitely had the very standard academic path where I graduated with a PhD. I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship. I did a postdoctoral fellowship, <laughs> and then I went to to be a professor. However, the during the postdoctoral fellowship, I worked for in the laboratory of George Church, uh, who is quite well known for for spinning out a huge number of companies uh, at Harvard Medical School. And the environment in those laboratories is very different than the environment in pure science laboratories because you have people who, who really see that their futures are not necessarily a standard academic pathway. And that, again, it just provides a very different environment for the people who are transitioning out of the lab and going into the working world as different possibilities. And, and being in Boston, candidly, obviously, is a very startup-rich environment. So, um, you know, venture capitalists are coming around often and shopping in all of the, the good research labs looking to see if there's anything ready to spin out that they might want to incubate uh, in stealth for a while in the early days. So I've been exposed to that culture, but I had a, when I was at Harvard, I, I really, I, I had mentored a number of students in summer programs uh, who didn't have access to, to research within their own institutions. And I felt very strongly about the fact that I became a scientist because I was blessed to find somebody to mentor me when I was an undergraduate. And I thought that the right thing to do was to participate in the solution rather than just sort of recognize the problem. Yeah. And I took a job to, at uh, the City University of New York, which, of course, is this massive public institution that the city supports. They have over a quarter million students and some huge number of campuses. And uh, there was an opportunity to build a, a biophysics program at Hunter College. And I really, I, it was a great transition for me. I candidly, I, I, I think that the, the opportunity to see when students actually start to become self-sufficient problem solvers is perhaps one of those magic moments uh, that yeah. everybody should witness. <laughs> you know, when they, think that, when they think they can't do it and then all of a sudden they can do it, it's just, a, it's really just so amazingly rewarding. And a lot of that can be taught through research. 
And uh, certainly, I think that's a very valuable thing that all scientists should be thinking about investing into. As it turns out, it's not easy to do journal quality research in institutions which are primarily undergraduate and obviously have heavy teaching loads, et cetera. Uh, I was struggling with the fact that it wasn't easy to, to do everything that I had hoped to do in my career at that point. And uh, I don't know, the timing just worked out that it seemed like it was the right time to transition. So Stony Brook University had opened up a few incubators uh, on their campus. And uh, one of them was, well, all of them were inexpensive, but the one that I was particularly interested in was, you know, significantly less expensive than anything New York had to offer because New York City at that point really didn't have any biotech incubator space except for the space that was coming online in, in Downstate's campus, um, uh, SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn. So I uh, went out to Eastern Long Island and decided that I would try to take some idea that I had in my head. Uh, that I had never really fleshed out for food safety diagnostics and try to invent something that would, would again, be very research rewarding in the sense of keeping you know your mind active and you're solving great problems, but at the same time, solve a problem and a need that was really out there. There had been a, a lot of press at that time about um, pathogen contamination of fresh produce and finding better ways that are cost efficient, uh, that you can actually test uh, produce for, for pathogens, I thought was a really important problem to solve. So I learned a lot, but the company wasn't as successful as, as I hoped, but I think you'll find that from every startup entrepreneur. Yeah, <laughs> You have to have sure. a couple of failures under your belt, right? So um, what, I what I learned was to be a, a, a more of a business person than an academic. So I think that was an important transition. Yeah. Um, there were just so many lessons learned along the way. I raised a little funding, learned lessons there, uh, market fit, learned lessons there, government regulatory stuff. It changes your ability to be able to do things, learned more lessons there. There were plenty, there were plenty of things that didn't, didn't work as planned, but uh, it's okay as long as you, you keep the focus of where does this take me on the next step in life. So I'm sorry. I, say, I, want to I want to talk to you about uh, QNECT. So, that, I mean, that was one of the next steps in where you are now, right? Doing this great work. Um, can you give me a sense of what motivated the founders? I, always, I think people are always curious, especially um, insight to entrepreneurs. I mean, what you've just shared about your experience uh, was certainly invaluable. But wondering what motivated, I'm going to list the founders. So Dr. Mehdi Namazi, Mayo Flament, and Eden Figueroa. Um, to, to start a quantum communications company. I mean, you don't sort of wake up one morning and say, hey, let's let's start a quantum communications company. See if we can entangle photons and send them across existing fiber. Yeah, so, so I, th I think that, I mean, so Eden Figueroa was, a, so he is a, a professor at Stony Brook University with a joint appointment at Brookhaven National Lab. And uh, Mehdi Namazi was his first PhD student. So when uh, Eden was getting rolling at Stony Brook University. He had come from a, a laboratory in the Max Planck system in Germany, which specialized in studying this sort of phenomena of slowing down light. And what's interesting about that phenomena is that it, it, it is the backbone of our quantum memory. So uh, for a long time, people had thought that it's something that you could probably use for this. So there had been plenty of people theorizing this should be the case. But the practical implementation of it had not really occurred. So during Mehdi's PhD, 
that that really was his PhD was to take this idea and figure out all of the hard stuff involved in trying to show that it could actually be implemented to demonstrate single photon storage in release on demand without damaging the quantum state. Myel um, Flament um, actually followed Mehdi by a couple of years in the laboratory. He was part of the physics instrumentation graduate program, which is another one of these interesting, unique programs that Stony Brook University hosts that's kind of a combined engineering physics degree study. And for his master's thesis, he took the setup that uh, Mehdi had been using for the quantum memory and created one of the first rack style instruments uh, of the same device. And um, I think at the time they all knew that it was interesting and had maybe the potential to be something that would be a cool instrument in the startup world, but no idea how to transition it to that. Because I think the difference between a research lab and a, a startup company has a lot to do with the fact that the research lab tends to hire people who are, again, progressing the science and the goal is to do journal articles. Companies need to solve problems related to commercialization and market fit. And, you know, that's usually something where you have scientists who need to obviously bring great science to the table, but you have engineers that need to put it in correct packaging. You have software people who need to do the interface overlay. In order to actually take it the next step, both Mehdi and Mayel really understood that they needed a company more than an academic structure. And uh, they applied for the NSF i program, which a lot of young, young people do who are in either their PhDs or postdocs when they have a clever idea. That supports a sort of market survey uh, where uh, they get some money to go out and basically supports them to interview lots and lots of potential customers on if this device existed, would it be something you would be interested in using in your organization? Oh, interesting. Wow. And uh, so it's like a customer discovery type of, of exercise, but... But it's a great moment of being able to learn how to talk to people about what you think that you would like to do and whether there's actually any pull for this. So they decided to put together a company and uh, following this i um, exercise. And I was working with a, a state economic development venture fund called Accelerate New York Seed Fund. And the purpose of the fund was to support um, very rich intellectual property assets that were spinning out of universities or being uh, developed in New York State, and to help them raise first funds so that they could get started here. And hopefully, you know, some large fraction of them would choose to stay here and continue to develop their businesses here. And uh, by far in the downstate region, I think the, the dominant science, but just because of the, the type of research which goes on here is, is pretty much biomedical. But there's also some very interesting deep tech Mehdi and Mael actually applied to the fund for funding. <laughs> so that's oh, how I, I oh. ended up meeting. So, so, so fast forward, the net result, right? You recently announced the launch of a groundbreaking quantum network demonstrating your integrated product suite. We're going to talk about that in more detail in a moment. But that supports entanglement-based communications protocols over, and I think this is compelling, right? Existing telecom infrastructure in New York City. So one aspect is that you're able to integrate an entangled photon source and high-fidelity quantum memory in order to realize long-distance quantum communication protocols. So tell our listeners how this evolved. How, you know, how do you got to this point? One of the fun things I can point to now is that the, the Nobel Prize in Physics that was announced this year is actually the underpinnings of, of the technology that we're now commercializing. Wow. So um, 
there were some very elegant physics experiments done in the early 90s where uh, they were able to demonstrate that you could exchange information from different pairs of entangled photons by interfering one half of each pair. And the, the process is called entanglement swapping. And it's a, uh, an interesting uh, sort of transactional way to distribute entanglement in space over larger distances without ever measuring uh, the photons, which are continuing to, to get further and further away from each other. So in quantum, one of the, one of the sort of tricks, right, is that nobody knows what it is until somebody looks, right? So measurements destroy the quantumness, so to speak. But those same measurements can be used in order to map entanglement of, of one photon to another uh, in space, and the, that's the entanglement swapping protocol. But I think the, it's, it's a different paradigm in thinking of, of how we protect any type of, of information that we might send with photons. So in the, in the current digital regime, we send information via you know, bursts of light which translate through some mathematical algorithm into information that we read or we listen to, et cetera, right? In the quantum world, the idea is that you send single particles of light instead of bursts of light, and that the information is physically encoded into the quantum state of that one particle of light. And sending one particle at a time through a fiber is obviously a delicate procedure because what happens when you lose them, et cetera. So there are all sorts of protocols for this. But it's not quantum secure until you start thinking about how do you preserve that quantum state over different types of transactions. So quantum security is all about the fact that there is a physically encoded information on the particle of light and that it is safe until somebody measures it. Um, and then you can't reconstruct it, which is one of the properties of quantum. So there's a no cloning theorem. Uh, what we try to do is we try to use this even more special property, this entanglement property of photons which is another very special property. So you start off with an entangled pair and I keep one and I give one to you and you walk to wherever you go with yours. But until one of us looks at it, they're completely secure because we don't know what information is in them. And the promise of all of quantum communications is basically until somebody starts looking at the information on the line, right? The information is secure. And if somebody starts looking at information on the line, then you have very easy detection of hackers because it's destroying this property of randomness. So um, I just think it's a, it's a very interesting, different way of thinking about how we are going to communicate in the future uh, and what types of information you might need to send with these types of protocols. In preparing for our conversation, I noticed that QNAC has quite a robust portfolio of hardware, which you know, to some degree sets you apart in the quantum space. What if you could tell us briefly just a little bit about each of these uh, devices and how they interoperate? Um, the list includes QSource, QMemory, QAPC, QSync, QLock, and says coming soon, QSwap. It's like exhausting just hearing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> just wondering how, what do they do and how do they you know, connect? How do they interoperate? So basically, um, when the company came to me for funding, they were a quantum memory company. And the reason that they had focused on quantum memory is because it was well understood in the field that the difference between the experiments that they were doing at the time of the Nobel Prize, so at the time of the Nobel Prize, they were proving that they could do this protocol called entanglement swapping, but you couldn't do anything downstream with it because you couldn't hold on to 
the other half of the pairs of photons to do something with them. And that's where quantum memories come in. They hold uh, the, the half of the pair that doesn't go to the swapping station. And it's sort of this key technology to being able to commercialize or start to think of how you would use these things for, for any type of network transaction. Right. So during the pandemic, uh, which is when I, I had just joined the company before that, we started thinking, you know, it's a big gamble to develop a quantum memory in you know, a vacuum, basically, right? So you're, you're developing it because it's the only instrument you care about, and you hope that the ecosystem starts developing all the other tools around you, because that's a big hope, right? Yeah. Instead, we said, look, if I wanted to use telecom infrastructure today, what basic set of instruments would I need in order to have a drop-in solution where somebody who wants to try to play with this for network protocols could actually use it? And that's how we came up with the device suite. So the the so entanglement swapping requires two things. It requires the source and a swapping station, so the Q swap. But in order to be able to do something with the other half of the entangled pairs, you have to have the quantum memory. So what we would call our quantum product suite would be the source, the memory, and the swapping station. But then you have this problem, you want to put this out in the real world, and for quantum to work, you often need very, very, very fine precision references so that everything is operating near the same wavelength, and that's a wavelength with several decimal places worth of precision. You need clocks, which work in sub-nanosecond sort of precision timing, which need to, again, clock all of these different transactions because photons move at the speed of light through fibers. <laughs> And then you, then you also need uh, some type of sort of active calibration because telecom fibers change during the day. They're a material. So the fact that they're inside the ground and the ground changes temperature or that you have rush hour and the fiber is buried near the highway, these types of things actually influence the way fibers affect the photons which are going through them by changing the material properties of the fiber you know, briefly or at these types of you know, frequency timescales. So we needed to also have some type of active calibration tool uh, that was going to go out and to measure what's happening on the line right now, uh, apply a compensation signal, and keep the quantum information going. So that's how we came up with the set. So the calibration tool is called a QAPC. The um, wavelength reference, so that all of the lasers and instruments all have uh, something to lock onto, is called the QLock. The sort of orchestrating device and and clock that we put at all of our different stations is called a QSync. So those are three what we would call kind of support products, which help with actually doing the networking that support the other three products, which are the basic things that you need for, for swapping. So the quantum memory, which stores and releases photons on demand without changing their quantum state. Uh, the source, which produces pairs of photons at a time. Ours is particularly unique because the pairs that we produce, one of them is at telecom wavelength and one of them is at the memory wavelength. And they're, again, with very high precision for the memory so that it, it lowers the interfacial loss between the two instruments. Uh, and so you have, again, the source that produces pairs, and then you have the swapping station, which is just a little interference measurement station that, that goes in between. No, oh, very exciting. Congratulations on your recently announced Series A funding, right? Over $8 million. Thank you. We're thrilled. By, <laughs> yeah, bravo. This is me applauding into the microphone. <laughs> yes, um, nice, nice. Let, 
led by Airbus Ventures, and then participation from Quantination, Sandbox AQ, New York Ventures, Impact Science Ventures, and Modus Ventures. So I want to get a sense from you, you know, how you're going to use this funding to drive the business model and expand capabilities of the QNEC portfolio. What's the roadmap? You know, what other products are in development? I think it's, it's a nice time to recognize how important small business grants are to, to companies who are trying to do very high-risk research. <laughs> uh, the realities were that when we decided to expand our product suite from being a single product to six products, that's a terrifying pitch to an investor. So, yeah. so, you, so you go out and you're like, you know, not only am I going to try to develop something that has a massive amount of scientific risk and technical risk, as a single instrument, I would like to develop five other things. Um, <laughs> Yikes. So the pitch wasn't very investor friendly uh, in the first few years. But since I knew a lot of investors who were more Series A stage, I was blessed by the fact that I could do some reconnaissance with all of those people and say, what what stage would our company need to be at in our product suite to open the door and have a real conversation with you? And what came back to us time and time again was we'd like to see prototypes of the full suite um, because it basically is a very heavy de-risking moment so that there's the ability to see that the stuff can be invented and engineering follows after that, but the, a lot of the scientific risk has been addressed. The only way to do that is to have enough funding to be able to make it over those hurdles. And the Department of Energy, we're very fortuitous that the, fortunate, sorry, the, the Department of Energy had a number of quantum calls uh, during the pandemic and the year that followed. The same was true for the United States Air Force and Air Force Research Labs. All of these supported different instruments are a suite to be built uh, where we could actually take the time to do the research properly and get it to the point where we could do a design freeze and make it into an instrument. Um, now we're at the place where we have all of these prototypes and it certainly was a gating moment for Airbus Ventures and others to see that this could really happen and come together. But what we need to do is now prove that all of these instruments can work together efficiently. Um, every quantum instrument has its own quirks. <laughs> They're all delicate, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, interfacing them is hard. And if you have any type of losses in the interfacing, those compound when you start talking about having lots of nodes, each one has a set of equipment, each one has its own interfacial losses, and there's losses within the network just to send it from one place to the next. So basically what this round is supporting is first and foremost, taking the prototypes that we have now, uh, starting to move those towards industrial grade from research grade, because what we build are certainly first in class, but you know, you still need you still need to have some physics knowledge to be able to use them. So, so that's one milestone. The other one is uh, optimizing the interface of all of these instruments by lowering interfacial losses, etc., in a uh, design context and showing that they can work together as advertised on a network. And one of the particularly exciting things that was highlighted in the press, and it certainly is something that our investors are excited about as well, is the fact that. We, we are in a facility where we can have fiber running out of the facility and to our other laboratory, which we're building now, or in loops back to our, our current laboratory, or to some academic partners over in Manhattan. All of these things would be opportunities for us to be able to show that our instruments work on real fiber in a metropolitan context, yeah. which given all of the problems of, you know, these fibers were not built for this, right? 
So, so it's a real opportunity for us to see if we can actually do something with the noisy background environment. And the reason that it's important to do it in New York is because you have customers like JP Morgan and others, right, who are interested in what's happening in the quantum world. They have a huge quantum team. Yeah. Wells Fargo has a quantum team. Uh, you know, yeah. Morgan Stanley, they all have people yeah. who are part of their sort of scouting part of the world trying to understand and get in front of any type of crisis that might happen when we're all worried about security, right? Yeah. And I think that New York being a financial epicenter is really a good place to show that a quantum network can can be built, that these protocols can be supported. And it's also a place where people could travel and and do you know their types of demonstrations on our network in the case that it's of, of interest to companies who are like service providers or hardware component providers support the current internet. Well, well the segue is into sort of, you know, enterprise applications, right? The $64,000 question, clients, you're implying it. Um, I'd love to get more detail. So uh, your recent press release stated your chest bed will open the door for users in financial services, critical infrastructure, and telecom. Can you give us some insight into how current or potential clients might use this test bed of a quantum network? As you say, there are many, uh, you know, many organizations, certainly in verticals like financial services and maybe healthcare, and I would think even legal, military for sure, right? Where um, protecting data, putting putting it across an immutable network is key and would drive the business model. And I think uh, the right right way to think about quantum communication is it's it's more or less at the same level digital communication was in 1969 or something. <laughs> okay. It's, it's yeah. exceedingly slow. The first the first messages that were sent over ARPANET were you know just tiny tiny little messages right of a few letters apiece. Um, this is exactly where we are in quantum communications. It yeah. means that you're not going to be streaming. Yeah. Netflix over your phone anytime soon on a quantum line. However, uh, there are security sensitive applications where, yes, you don't have the speed that you would have in the digital world, but you have security, which is basically paramount. And that's the reason that the particular types of industries, which I list, listed like critical infrastructure and financial services and defense are all interested in what quantum communications can do. I think yeah. the, the, the practical way, I mean, the reason that everyone skirts the question of what is a real use case is that it's, it is somewhat difficult to know until someone realizes how robust the system actually is. But I think that any message that you need to send that's highly secure and can afford to be sent slowly is the answer for the first part of that. Uh, this is the reason that the first generation of quantum technologies called quantum key distributions are popular right now. They literally send keys, right, or sequences of numbers. And that's effectively probably what some early applications of the uh, sort of second generation technology, which are these distributed entanglement technologies, will probably end up doing first as well. However, I think the, the big difference between the first generation tech and second generation tech has to do with the fact that the the foundation of the quantum internet, if we think of the internet as being a, a meshwork of devices which are interconnected with fibers which host information without having to transform that information, so as conduits, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that a quantum internet will connect quantum devices the same way we think of a digital internet connecting digital devices. And 
The only way you can do that is to have an actual quantum network in between. The first generation technologies are not building quantum networks. They're just learning how to communicate with single photons. The second generation technologies like these distributed entanglement technologies are actually setting the stage for being able to connect quantum devices through a quantum channel. And that's super exciting for applications like quantum sensors, where you would have two quantum sensors at a distance from one another who are actually connected over uh, a quantum line or two quantum computers. It's funny, I was giving a, a talk somewhere. Um, I've done it a few times now, but I, I always remember one of the early applications of distributed computing being the SETI screensaver that everyone downloaded onto their computers to help process all of the data from radio telescopes to look for oh, yeah, yeah. Extra, extraterrestrial life. Uh -huh. that's, that's when Macs look like toasters, right? So, uh -huh. <laughs> so in, in those years, right, it was a great application of they had more data than they knew what to do with. So they had this distributed app basically, right? So they, they use processors on home computers to work on, you know, with a very simple algorithm, right? Screening tons of data, right? That they didn't have enough computer power to do at the time at right. SETI. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's a compelling idea that quantum computing, as it's evolving, we all know that it's hard to make processors with large numbers of, of qubits, that being able to string together processors, or in some cases, there are physical constraints on being able to, to create more qubits in a given processor, so sometimes modularity is key. So stringing together different quantum processors is something that, again, you would like to have a quantum channel in between so that you don't have to go back and forth between quantum and digital. So I think those hold a tremendous amount of pro promise. It's definitely the the dream applications, which are downstream. The more near-term applications are, we know that critical infrastructure, because of tons of legacy systems, right, are very vulnerable to attack. And uh, GE has had a, a project with another quantum company on the West Coast, Cubitech, for, for many years now, and a, an energy provider in Chattanooga named EPB to explore ways that uh, quantum can be used to protect critical infrastructure. And now EPB is even building a sort of open testbed to actually host um, people to come down and to try to, again, use their quantum devices on this testbed in order to see if they would be useful in some ways to, to helping protect smart grids. All of that's interesting. Obviously, New York City, everything is at some frightening scale when you start talking about <laughs> critical infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that there will be plenty of people who are interested in, in what it can possibly do. But you know, candidly, service providers are interested in what this tech could do. If you look at all of the, the standard uh, service providers like the Verizons and AT&Ts and the ones who support it like Cisco, they all have quantum initiatives. Uh, there's uh, interest in all of these organizations of what this can do. Uh, and I think that having a place where you can actually demonstrate the technology and have an open dialogue between what's needed and where we are realistically in terms of hardware development is super helpful to both both sides of the equation, right? So, so yeah. I think so, yeah, that's the dream. So I want to ask you about you know, just a little bit more detail. I don't want to get too in the weeds with it, but I think the conversation around second generation sort of post-QKD technologies you know, that important entanglement swapping is a topic that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, you know, it's sort of after QKD. As you're saying, if, you know, entanglement swapping is the next uh, approach, it's going to require people to rethink QKD solutions, right? Um, you'd mentioned that the TU Delft group is using nitrogen vacancy diamond centers. Uh, there's a Harvard, MIT, AWS group using silicon vacancy centers. There's a lab in Barcelona, the, the Reed Matten lab showing entanglement of two rare earth memories over fiber. 
And while exciting, none of these groups have really crossed into the threshold of making a commercialized product that can scale. So tell us why the QNECT approach is going to, uh, how it's going to address this as opposed to these other modalities. So uh, maybe that's a two-part question. So let me let me first just kind of tackle the the QKD versus distributed entanglement. Yeah. So Q, so QKD, I think unfortunately, you know, there's been quite a bit of uh, negative press about it because of some some thoughts by the NSA about whether it's useful or not. But you know, America had a bit of a, a Sputnik moment when uh, China. Uh, well before America decided to announce a large investment in quantum communications and quantum networking. They launched a satellite in 2016 uh, to basically act as the first quantum satellite. Uh, And then after that, uh, invested a tremendous amount into infrastructure to build a first-generation network across their country that included the ground-to-satellite link uh, to the satellite they launched in 2016. And I think... You know, obviously, you know, motivation shouldn't always be trying to keep up with technology, but it was definitely a wake-up call uh, to say, look, America needs to pay attention whether they want this or not. They need to at least understand how the technology works. So there are lots of first-generation quantum protocols. The ones which are most commonly used are basically trying to take advantage of the fact that, yes, you can encode information on single photons. You send those single photons from sender to receiver, so it's a point-to-point protocol. But then to make it quantum secure, what you do is you actually impose a type of randomness at both the sender and the receiver, which randomly sift what's sent from one to the other. And then through a classical channel, those two entities exchange information only on the settings of their sifter. And then, sure enough, uh, you keep whatever the two of you have agreed that you want to keep through those settings, and you have a key. And you can do this over and over and over again. And that's the most commonly used protocol, which is BB84. The photons which go into that process are not entangled photons. They are single photons, which carry some information in the polarization state of the photon. It It was very important that... It's like a stepping stone that this technology existed because I think communicating with single photons is not trivial. That was important. But it's limited in the sense that it's a point-to-point tech. What do you do when the photon can't travel any further in the fibers? So the fiber is made of material. There are losses with any material. And the longer you try to, to push the photon through the material, you incur a loss. So it's something around the 50 or 70 kilometer range you start to have tremendous losses in these fibers and they're no longer useful for sending single photons. So that means that you're limited to distances of, let's call it 50 kilometers. And at 50 kilometers, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to put a duplicate set of hardware which takes your photon in its quantum state, turns it into digital information, and then re-encodes it into quantum and sends it again. Hmm. Oh, so, interesting. So the, the NSA came out against this technology in America. They were dismissive of it because they said that it wasn't worth upgrading the infrastructure to have all of these duplicate sets of encoders and decoders everywhere at every one of these nodes, which are called trusted nodes, because information is vulnerable at those nodes to hacking. Uh, so it is not a truly secure point, you know, overall, you know, beginning to end solution, end to end solution. So the promise of second generation technologies is the you never take the photon out of its quantum state. 
by distributing entanglement, which is a special property of, of the quantum world, right? you're basically saying uh, the photon maintains its its quantum state and its quantumness, right? its entanglement, until we both decide to measure, right? or until one of us decides to measure. Until one, by, one person measures, the information is completely secure. Nobody knows what's in the message at all. And that's, that's an end-to-end -end solution if you can manage to figure out some way to maintain entanglement as you're increasing the distance. And sort of quantum advantage in the communications world is all about thinking about how, how, you, how you do better than the material fiber loss of transmitting a photon through a fiber by doing these protocols like entanglement swapping and gaining distance uh, which is greater than that fiber loss, right? So gaining a distance greater than the fiber loss for a pair of photons is like a, you can only do it in quantum, right? So it's a quantum advantage that you couldn't see in, in the classical world. In classical world, you're, you're limited by this fiber loss of 50 to 70 kilometers. So we're, we're excited because of course, it's always fun to think about very elegant physics happening in the real world. Um, so that's, so to me, I'm always like mind boggled that all this stuff can translate from the laboratory anyway. But the thing that really attracted me to Connect, which is the second part of your question, um, is the first time that I read about it, I didn't actually know that you could do um, the physics process which underlies um, our quantum memory. I didn't know that that worked at room temperature. And in fact, it doesn't only work at room temperature, it works at slightly elevated temperatures. We typically run our, our memories something closer to 50 Celsius. So the idea of doing something in warm vapor as opposed to very cold, <laughs> still environments right. is, is a little crazy, right? But, yeah, it can be yeah. fun, but it has to be done by thinking about the problem differently. And um, so that was extremely attractive to me. So what Connect does that those other technologies cannot do is that our, our devices literally are standalone devices that sit in rack mount drawers. We don't have an extra room full of refrigeration equipment and vacuums that are supporting the instruments that sit on the rack. It's literally just the rack. And it's because of learning how to deal with the, the idea of working in warm vapors. So uh, basically, we store the information from the photon in a very special process called electromagnetically induced transparency. A control laser opens up a, a window in a vapor cell. So it's a literally like a glass cylinder filled with rubidium atoms. You use this strong control laser to, to open up a transparency window within that cell. And then you send your quantum information in wherever this, this window has been opened. And then you turn off the control laser and the information in the photon, the quantum photon that you wanted to capture ends up being distributed over trillions, hundreds of trillions of atoms um, as this sort of collective state. Um, and you can think of it like a wave, a spin wave, where this huge collection of atoms are acting as an ensemble to store some information. And then again, these things are moving at like in extraordinary speeds inside of the vapor cell itself, but still this information is stored collectively over the ensemble. When you turn on the control laser again, you can actually release the photon, which will be reassembled from all of the information that's stored in the spin wave. And uh, what we learned how to do, and I think the thing that all of the innovators in my company have, have done just an amazing job with, is to take the fact that this is 
if, it's of course hard to do in these warm vapor systems, but it's much harder to think about how you're going to do it with high fidelity and long coherence times. And to sit down and to think a lot about the atomic sources of noise in the system and the technical sources of noise, optimize the system and actually get to a point where we have like a commercial device that operates at hundreds of microseconds with uh, 95 or better percent fidelity, which is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, that yeah. run, but it's great. No, very exciting. So we're coming to the end, but I want to get your take on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is workforce. Right. So I want to get get your perspective on the challenges facing a company like Connect and finding talent. How do you go about recruiting for your company? I know there's a, a shortage of uh, certainly PhDs in physics, but do you have affiliations maybe with universities? And wondering if there are roles in specific disciplines that are harder to fill than others. How does that work for your company? So I think that we have a few layers of why it's difficult for our company. One of them is our company is located in New York City. So, so recruiting recruiting to New York, although lots of people like to live in New York, is challenging because the salaries are generally higher here because the cost of living is higher. When you're supporting a company on grants, that means that you don't expand quickly because, it's, again, you can only support so much salary-wise uh, on, on federal grants. Um, academics, because the academic pipeline is, is just so different than the industry pipeline, have a tendency to be much more tolerant of the sort of salary differences of them, their jobs versus what, what happens in the sort of non-academic sector. Quantum scientists, uh, before the big sort of rush to have a huge number of quantum computing companies, et cetera, the vast majority of those were looking for what might be a standard academic pathway and a standard academic postdoc makes nowhere near what a quantum scientist makes in a, a modern quantum company. So of course, there's a great interest now in the fact that I, I do think, you know, as you start looking back at physicists and who chooses what in graduate school and what are the possibilities after graduate school, that certainly there is probably going to be a wave that follows the the job need, right, of more quantum physicists that are coming out of universities that go into roles like this. However, at the current stage, what ended up happening is that companies that had uh, large SPAC announcements, et cetera, went to scale quickly, and it ended up being a very competitive marketplace for getting quantum scientists because several companies had large numbers of openings. And candidly, because they had raised a lot of money, had very lucrative salaries. We certainly recruit through academic you know, pathways because we have obviously connections within the space. But I think the, the realities are, it's a different environment to be in a startup than to be in an academic path. It's a different environment to be in a, a struggling startup than to be in a well-funded well startup. Depending on people's lifestyle preferences, some are more or less tolerant to the stability of the, the startup world. So that, that always ends up being slightly problematic, right? So, so that's, that's a real challenge. The other side of this is that, so we need quantum scientists, engineers, and software developers. Software developers in New York City are, are very well rewarded for their roles. And I think it's, it's always a challenge when you start a team, and, and we, we took this very seriously when we started Connect and started to build the team we wanted everybody to feel valued. 
And that means that everybody who has kind of a similar job function and seniority should make kind of the same salary. And when the software world is so disproportionately high compared to the science world, that becomes challenging. And that was something that that we dealt with when we started to build out our diverse team. And certainly it's something that we always like to believe that people want to work here because the job is so much more interesting and more rewarding than being at at Google. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. But we don't quite have the benefits package of Google yet, so. so, Maybe, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I think, so I will say that it has not been, it has not been easy to recruit for other types of uh, team members which have uh, a fair amount of job pull in in New York City. But, Sometimes that's also kind of a great filter because what ends yeah. up happening is that the people right. who are really interested in being with your team and seeing mm-hmm. the mission of the company succeed ends up yeah. being enough of a driving force for them to compromise slightly on maybe some of the things that we can't offer that a, a larger company can. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So we've come to the end. I want to, I would like to end the podcast by asking for your vision, sort of look in the crystal ball and give our listeners your sense of where quantum computing and maybe, you know, more specifically quantum networking might be in say three to five or seven to 10 years, whatever time frame you're comfortable um, talking about. And, you know, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have more broadly on how we live and work? Well, I think that so for quantum communications, I think that we probably have five years in front of us of, of, of a lot of test beds coming online. Europe has a huge initiative to support the build-out of quantum test beds in every one of its countries and then to interconnect them. The U.S., through the Department of Energy, has similar types of initiatives, which have been announced recently. So I think what you're going to see is that first technologies start to mature a little bit on these test beds, and then a fairly normal transition is that some standards will be declared. When standards are declared, then everybody is at least engineering towards the same thing. Right now, it's a lot of parallel efforts where people have their own systems and quantum systems operate in their own wavelengths and have a tendency to be made out of different materials. All of this stuff will change if a standard is chosen because then everybody knows that that's what everybody has to engineer towards. So I think that's probably what you have in the next five years of, of quantum networking. There are currently initiatives to figure out how to interface quantum computers with quantum networks. I really hope within the next five years that there's some great proof of concepts of, do- of doing that well. Uh, so I think that's five years out, right? Yeah. The next five to 10 years, which happen after that, I think that you'll start to start seeing use cases where you actually, I mean, right now, there are always going to be some people that have an early interest and want to see some demonstration of, of capability, but then they need to think about what it is that they actually might use this for. So I, I would say that probably in five years, we'll have a much stronger basic platform that people can start to do use cases on. And then the next five to 10 years after that is when the use cases start and mature. I think that's probably, and in quantum computing, I don't know. I mean, the promise is it's going to solve everything. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> We just have to wait for a big enough computer. and uh, well, I'll have to wait and see. But I think, again, as you implied earlier, I mean, the quantum networking, the ability to connect quantum computers, I mean, that's tremendous potential, right, for for value creation. I think that the, we, all, we all just don't think as much about distributed computing as we, yeah. did, we did in, like, the 80s. 
I think yeah, that's I the, the, difference, the difference, right? And, you know, when, when personal computers were finally capable of being connected to any type of, of network, right? That's much more of a 90s thing. But in the, in the 80s, right, what you had were uh, a fair amount of VAX terminals and other things, right? They were running some simplistic protocols, but not necessarily using it for huge amounts of distributed computing. I mean, this was also the evolution of the, the supercomputers that sit in rooms, right? Quantum computers kind of have the same thing where I always think that the acceptance of quantum computing as being able to sit in a very specialized facility and being maintained by a huge amount of highly skilled workers is okay for people because we've all become so comfortable with the idea of using the cloud for interfacing and computing right. is not a concept that anybody was thinking about in the 70s, right? No one thought that eventually it was going to be totally practical that you would be using a whole bunch of Amazon servers to calculate things, right? Wherever they were. Yes, exactly. I mean, but nobody, yeah, exactly. Nobody was thinking that way. So I think that obviously there is going to be a little bit of the, if you build it, they will come. Uh, but I, I don't think that any of the applications that we really were thinking about in, well, we, that others were thinking about in the earlier days of the internet were necessarily as grand in scope as what, the internet has actually become on the digital side. Um, so, so let's let's hope that quantum takes us even further. Aspirin. Yes, I agree. Well, Noel, we've come to the end of our time. I want to thank you very much. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and thanks for sharing your insight and perspective on, on what's going on at QNECT and and more broadly in the quantum space. So, uh, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I want to invite uh, people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn, Connect Inc. Right, Connect Inc. on LinkedIn and the website as well as Connect Inc. Also a Twitter handle, Connect Inc. And there's some videos on YouTube. So thanks again, Noel, for joining me today, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Noel. Encourage you to listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.